0: Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss and thanks for listening. There is a frightening rise in the incidence of teenage suicide. It is the fourth leading cause of death for kids between 10 and 14 years of age. Imagine a 10-year-old. And the third leading cause of death for the group between 15 and 24 years of age. Patrick McCory is a professor of psychiatry for the Center of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And he joins us today to discuss this problem. Dr. McCory, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Let's begin with a very big question, but an important one. To the best of our knowledge, why are so many kids trying or committing suicide? What's going on? I
1: think it is a, it's a complex question, but one of the answers is that the major period for the onset of mental ill health across the lifespan exists between puberty and around 25. So all the major forms of mental ill health, you know, mood disorders, um, psychosis, drug and alcohol problems, personality difficulties, eating disorders and so on, they all emerge roughly from puberty through to peaking in the early 20s. Obviously there are some kids that have mental health problems prior to puberty but and certainly some of the risk factors for adolescent and young adult onset of disorder uh, operate in childhood too, that's obvious in a preventive sense but the surge of need for care if I can put it that way or need for support and expert help in many cases occurs in the teenage and young adult period and that's not to reduce it all to a disease or an illness that's to say that that's a fact and obviously social and psychological pressures interact in a very sort of profound way young people's lives are very secure and complex in many cases these days and it often takes these environmental triggers to bring this kind of mental health to the surface and when people are really struggling then many cases can't really deal with with the pressures. They're immature in a developmental sense and they need help because it's hard to cope.
0: Is this perhaps related to what people talk about as a breakdown in a family structure? Is there a sense that a stronger community, be it religious or some sort of other unity in a person's life, is that perhaps what's happening as well?
1: The very famous British adolescent psychiatrist, Michael Rutter, produced a huge textbook on this review of all the evidence about 15 years ago and he looked at all these types of variables certainly family discord family breakdown was one of the things he looked at there was some evidence for that and i can certainly say that in my clinical experience working in our headspace centers in australia these are youth mental health services across the country focusing on teenagers and young adults i certainly see that as a key factor that many families the families are much less stable often very complex blended family arrangements. Uh, and quite commonly parents that are really so preoccupied with their own lives and their own challenges that they aren't really able to parent their, their kids in the way that they perhaps in, in the past might have been a bit more clear-cut.
0: Obviously, if the child is in trouble, where do they go if they go to our mental health system? I know here in the United States it's very limited and from what I saw in the documentary when I saw you discussing this, it's the same in Australia. What do we do for these kids? Do they, they seem to get lost.
1: There's another thing is the neglect of adolescent mental health is one of the greatest forms of self-harm inflicted by the society on itself. Young people, as they make this very challenging transition to adulthood, we certainly have not built a system of mental health care that young people can get access to, or even if they get access, they're not very impressed with it, so they don't engage. And so there's a radical rethink required at the service level, and it's, there are two missing bits. One is the right culture of care, so that it's youth-friendly and it. It actually is influenced by the way young people want to be treated themselves. And secondly, the funding, I mean, it's just not resourced. Even though it's the peak period for need for care across the lifespan in terms of mental health care, it's the weakest and least well-funded out of the whole spectrum of mental health care. Mental health care is divided up into pediatric, this we call it child and adolescent mental health, and then there's an adult mental health sort of stream of care which looks after typically middle aged adults with severe and, and persistent mental illnesses. And in the middle, in this teenage, uh, young adult period, it's very threadbare.
0: A lot of kids are turning to Facebook, a lot of kids are turning to Twitter, and I'm not personally sure that's the best thing. My concern is that if a kid is feeling lousy, they'll post it on Facebook and they'll get 10, 20, 100 responses. But it's really so two-dimensional. It's, it's sad. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the role of social media in this problem.
1: Well, I guess social media for young people, especially it's an extension of their day-to-day world. I mean, they live their lives partly in that community. We in mental health have to get to grips with that. We have to, on the one hand, try to protect them against the dangers of social media. I mean, obviously, cyberbullying is a great concern. It's an extension of the bad things that happen in real life into that world as well. So it's a 24-7 thing. On the other hand, I think we have a research centre in Australia, a federal government-funded centres to try to study how we can develop interventions and support for young people through social media like Facebook and other platforms. That's actually going very, very well. We have major investment in that space to complement the new system of youth mental health care that we're building in this country. And those development would be mirrored or should be mirrored in in every country because it's it's just a reality these days. And there's a thing called eHeadbase, which is part of our Headspace platform here, which young people can access in real time. They can get assessment and and even therapy and interventions online in a fairly anonymous way without making a, a public commitment to seeking help. So it lowers the bar for getting access to expert care. So I think that's an example of how that how social media can actually assist us in reaching out to young people and engaging them.
0: There was even talk about some of the like Twitter doing some programming to monitor the content of interactions and to look for suggestions that someone may be depressed or in trouble. I was discussing this with a friend and they thought this was perhaps a terrible invasion of privacy but I can see where the notion would make sense if we could capture problems in kids before it became too far advanced. We've
1: had some discussions with Facebook and we're trying to put together a project supported by a charity called Movember which I think operates in the US and Canada as well as Australia and we think given that life-threatening situations will surface in, in the social media world like Facebook and Twitter, um, we do need to try to at least have offers of support and help available. There is this obsession with privacy, but I'd rather see an obsession on saving lives, which, as you pointed out in your introduction, in Australia, it's, it's, it's even more strongly the case that suicide is a, the leading preventable cause of death in young people, even up to the age of 35. So you've got to have the balance between saving lives and kind of intellectual issues like like privacy and I, I think people can get very obsessed with it with that aspect of things.
0: Do we find that more girls tend to look to suicide than guys? Is there a pattern that's gender specific?
1: Well that's a great question and, and it's one of the very interesting things about suicidal behavior that there are gender differences. Suicide attempts and, and self-harm are more common in young women, but actually completed suicide is more common in, in young men. So young men have less of a safety net, if you want to put it that way, in terms of lethality. If they attempt suicide, they're more likely to complete it. Young women, it's more of a spectrum, I, I would say. But nevertheless, the tendency is always to dismiss self-harm and, and, in a way, failed suicide attempts are somehow not serious, you know. And actually, they are a very serious risk factor for completed suicide. So if someone has attempted suicide or is engaging in self-harm, they're many times more likely to actually die. So when you see the way they're treated in emergency departments, these young people, is absolutely disgraceful.
0: And when you talk about self-harm, are you also talking about, for example, people who cut themselves or people who use drugs?
1: Yes, I guess self-harm's a wide definition. The reason young people are doing all of these things, and it, it disturbs adults, doesn't it, when you see a young person self-harming, cutting themselves. Another thing that disturbs parents is anorexic behaviour. I mean, it kind of disturbs adults to see young people doing those things to themselves, and I suppose drug use and alcohol abuse is another sort of example of that. But the common feature here is that the young people are actually feeling severe emotional distress and emotional pain and they're trying to relieve it in various ways. So usually these behaviors are the surface manifestation of something deeply wrong and the young person is struggling to find more effective ways of coping with and often with very little help from their friends and family.
0: And when they're feeling something wrong, it's our responsibility to ascertain or to delineate whether it's a biological depression or something that may be treatable with a medication, verbal psychotherapy or a social issue.
1: I think it's especially a big problem in the US where access to care is predicated on the idea that it's it's some kind of very narrowly defined disease for which there is a pill. Mm-hmm. Often they do need medication if it's a more serious sort of problem, but the first step has to be psychosocial like supportive sort of response and an assessment and as you say, that is not financed by the American healthcare system in a very effective way. We are reforming our system in Australia to actually make that possible through programs like Headspace, which will, has already treated 100,000 young people across the country, that it will be 100 centres across the country by 2016. And these provide very soft entry with funded psychosocial care, doctors as well, but not doctors front and centre, so that the doctor's role is part of a holistic approach. And it's very low stigma or stigma-free, I would say, even. So that's the kind of model. It's not exactly rocket science. You can see it in real life here in Australia and a small number of other countries. But it's very hard to engineer in the United States because of the defunding of mental health care that's occurred through managed care over the last 15, 20 years. And the kind of mindset that a lot of American psychiatry has had until recently, which is these are brain diseases, pure and simple. What we need is a much more sophisticated model of care which allows for the fact that the brain's involved and medications are important in many cases but it's a more complex situation for which skillful, holistic is the best word I can think of, approach is required Anyone that's spent time with young people knows that. Parents know it, teachers know it, the young people themselves know it too at sort of a a deeper level.
0: I like stigma-free. It captures one of the problems we have here, though it is better it is not stigma-free here at all, not yet. It's getting there The parents a lot of times, they may see their child going into a problem but their own feeling of shame or stigma is going to prevent the kid from getting the help that he or she needs. I like the term stigma-free. I must say, thank you for that. That's a good way of putting it.
1: Well, that's a great point you just made that the parents feel a sense of shame and failure. I think as a parent myself, I can totally understand that. But really, that's the mindset we have to change. These are the most common health and social problems that the young people have. If we kind of avoid it and and feel ashamed and cover it up, the issue of suicide that we're talking about is, is a classic because that the media and public course around suicide is very, very difficult for people to to have in in an open and positive way, which, as you pointed out, I think in Australia we're starting to do that. We have documentaries, we have real-life stories actually portrayed much more clearly in the media now.
0: Here in the United States, and I don't know if it's the same in Australia, we hear about somebody who was bullied to the point that they committed suicide. Do you see that problem also in Australia?
1: Very much so. Bullying is one of the major risk factors. Well, I guess abuse and trauma uh, and loss, they're they're the major psychological drivers of mental ill health. We've talked about the biology of of mental ill health and mental illness. The kind of psychological risk factors relate usually to things like trauma and loss. And obviously, bullying is the most common experience of kids, especially in early high school, I would say, and probably primary school, too, for that matter. So we have seen very celebrated cases reported on Programme 60 Minutes, which we have here in Australia, too. There was a 15-year-old in Tasmania who, you know, you could only say that she was bullied to death by her peers. Then cyberbullying, you know, when she got home from school, you know, 24-7. So... Poor girl, basically was forced. I would say into suicide as a result of that.
0: The question then comes up: If she's suffering from the cyber bullying, why is not she just turned her computer off?
1: Yeah, um, it, it's a bit like turning your whole life off uh, for, for young people in, in many ways, because that is a, a central part of their lives these days, as you said earlier. Yeah, uh, that is a that is one of the sort of questions that we are hoping to study through our national cooperative research centre in. in Uh, new technologies and youth mental health that I mentioned earlier. So I think we have to understand these processes a bit more clearly. There is an addictive element to it as well, I would say, too.
0: I'd also like you to talk for a moment about a situation that, how shall I say this, there is a fluctuation in understanding it. When I was in training, for example, it was thought that someone under the age of 18 probably could not be biologically depressed. And then it moved down. And now, at least here, we can look at someone with a bipolar disorder down to age 8. Obsessive-compulsive disorder down to age 8. Is there not enough attention paid to the biological realities of depressions in younger kids or are people too reluctant to accept the fact that a 13-year-old really does need medication at the right time, of course?
1: I think in the U.S. it's, it's the opposite problem. There's been, a, an, in a well-intentioned way, trying to help the Children and adolescents who do have a really serious need for expert care there's been a reductionistic approach to it by saying well look if it's serious it must be quote biological unquote therefore it must need medication now some of those young patients do need medication but it's assumed that that is the primary form of treatment and I've seen cases referred to me who have migrated to Australia from the US who really did not need that sort of medication they were diagnosed at a very young age and been on medication for some years, which in this country they would, would not have been prescribed. So I think that the missing element in the U.S. is sophisticated psychosocial care. You already have sophisticated use of medications, but they're not put in the right context. And I think it got everyone into a lot of trouble around the world, the behavior of some of the U.S. centers around that, by basically treating very young children for what they call bipolar disorder which really certainly in no other country would have been diagnosed as such so I think this is a very controversial issue where the balance has got out of whack in the US some other countries it's the other way but we have to have a you know as I was saying earlier a balanced position there certainly are biological dimensions to mental ill health which definitely justify use of medication but on the other hand the usual neglect is the lack of sophisticated psychosocial care.
0: The sophisticated psychosocial care is ongoing and generally more expensive.
1: It's more expensive, that's right. That's the other driver of it. It's not just the mindset. American psychiatry went from a reductionistic belief in psychoanalysis back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and it switched to a reductionistic belief in the brain, basically. And life is a bit more complex than that. It's, it's actually a combination of those things. And the big driver of it, as I said earlier, is is the attempt to reduce health costs. And psychiatry in the U.S. was particularly badly hit by that in a discriminatory way, which I understand is being fixed now with Obamacare and especially with the parity laws. The fact that mental health care is going to be given greater parity with... Physical health care will help the situation, I understand.
0: It will help a little, but we have quite a distance yet to go. Just in terms of, and I realize this is going to be condensed to the point where it may be overly simplistic, but what would be some of the major signs that a parent should look for in their teenager to raise the question of depression, the possibility of suicide? What does a parent see as a warning flag?
1: Um, that's a great question. Basically I think a change you know, and which often does occur in early adolescence, a, a previously very uh, sociable and happy child in primary school can change in early adolescence to someone who's more withdrawn, perhaps less communicative, less emotionally just demonstrative and these are kind of normal changes up to a point but I guess when friendships start to drop off, the adolescent is becoming more withdrawn, clearly more miserable perhaps not performing as well at school as they had done. I mean, you have to take the baseline into account there, of course. Or if there's evidence of precocious drug and alcohol use, dieting behaviour, sort of unusual behaviour that's hard to explain, those sorts of things. I think those are the main things. If there's any doubt, it's important to get an assessment if that's possible. The other thing I didn't mention is that the value of peers and the value of youth participation in our services is a major way of reducing the stigma and allowing people to seek help in a in a more comfortable way. So I think listening to young people's views about all these issues is really important and they often do find it hard to talk to their parents so finding a neutral person to talk to who also does need to talk to the parents and involve the parents too is part of the model.
0: Your words of a few minutes ago when you said this is a preventable cause of death, we can really intervene and make a difference and we just need to spend the time and the energy and the effort to do so.
1: If I could just add something, I've been in the U.S. recently twice and I think the leadership of the mental health sector in the U.S., the American Psychiatric Association, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, the National Institute of Mental Health, I think they really are starting to understand very clearly the value of young people and their importance in terms of preventable death, as you say, but also in terms of helping young people to fulfill their potential. Because they are struck down by these deforms of mental ill health at a critical time in their lives. It's not like heart disease or cancer which come at the end of life, later in life. These are affecting young people on the threshold doorstep of productive life and they're treatable problems. And as you say, We've reduced the road toll in Australia to a third of what it used to be. We have to reduce the suicide toll to a third of what it, of what it used to be. That's got like, to be our target.
0: Interesting. Patrick McCorry is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and we've been discussing some of the issues related to teen suicide. Sir, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Abby.